Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied abundantly unto you all through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It is Reformation Sunday, and we get to celebrate by looking at Romans chapter 3, only just a tiny little bit of it. And I'm telling you that the first two things that we all need to know in life is who God is, and who God says we are. And once we know who God is, and once we know who God says we are, then we can figure out the rest of the life, what we are supposed to do with our lives. And that's exactly where Paul begins in his great letter to the church, to the church in Rome. He tells them who God is and who they are. And what he does, he says that well, there are four, roughly four different views, different ways that humanity has a tendency to view God. These are sort of views or ruts we fall into, ways that we consider God, God and ourselves. And there was a study done, a massive study was done in the U.S. about people's opinions about God, it's called America's Four Gods. Book was published, and in, interesting in there is there's, it has the same four views that Paul prophesied in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 that we would have. The moral of the story is just give social science long enough and they'll catch up with what the Bible teaches. See, the Bible's not an outdated book. It's an eternal book, and it's relevant for every age. So anyway, Wikipedia put together this little graph. Atheists are not on here because, well, they vehemently deny the existence of God. But as we heard in the reading earlier, the gospel is preached to the entire world. So everyone needs God, including atheists. So very simply, we're going to take a quick look at these typical views of God. We'll look at first the benevolent God. And this is the view that God is engaged, but he's not judgmental. He loves, he's relational, he's kind, he's nice, he gives us hugs. He's kind of like Mr. Rogers, but he doesn't really judge anybody and he's not really critical. He just sort of takes you as you are. He doesn't want to change who you are. About a quarter of the population hold that view, even today. And Paul calls that view, in Romans chapter 1, he calls it unrighteousness. In other words, this is just the way I am, and God loves me, and he doesn't judge me, and he's not seeking to change me. There's another view of God. It's called the critical God. This is a God who is not engaged, but judgmental about 16 percent view god this way today god is distant he's judging and he tells you all the things you've done wrong but he doesn't get involved to help you he just sort of is like a critic not much of a coach paul talks about this in romans chapter 2 people who are religious and ideological and very devoted and very judgmental, 
but they're not relational, not sympathetic, not compassionate, uninvolved, and generally, too, apparently, not generous. Another prevalent view of God is the distant God. God is not engaged or judgmental. He's just sort of gone. And about a quarter of the population see God in this way, meaning God is, well, far away. He's not involved. He's not judgmental. He's kind of abandoned us. We're kind of on our own. He's an absentee landlord. That's the kind of person that if you ask them if they believe in God, they'll say, I guess so. Totally not sure. The result is, though, of this view, if you think God is gone and he doesn't really judge us or is involved with us, then if we're going to bring change into the world, we better bring it because God's not going to do it. So if God's not going to judge, then we better judge. If God's not going to be involved, then we better get involved. And this kind of thinking you'll hear expressed in critical theory, thinking, in social justice. All the cause-oriented people, generally speaking, fall under this category. And what Paul does, he obliterates those three popular misperceptions of God, and then he leaves standing only one perception of God, the correct one, about an authoritative God. And this is more akin to the God of the Bible, that God is engaged, he's relational, he loves you, he's involved in your life, but he's also judgmental. He has strong views. And he's one who sees right and wrong very clearly. And he calls out that which is acceptable and unacceptable in his sight. He is just. And as we learn from the Bible, he's also the justifier. And this is where we find ourselves learning about this God here in Romans chapter 3. The Bible is the best authority on God and the human condition. And the moral of the story is your view of God, it determines how you view yourself and the whole purpose of your life and all the problems and pains and perils you experience in this life. Where Paul is going with this is he's saying that there is a global problem. And the global problem is that sin is in everything. And I think you've noticed that education, corrupted, politics, corrupted, economics, corrupted. You know, some of us have moved in our lives. And have you realized that you can move to a different location? But that doesn't mean that there is a place that is not affected by sin. Everything and everyone 
in this world is infected by sin. So there's a global problem, but it's not just global. It's also personal. Not only is everything filled with sin and broken by sin, but we're filled with sin and broken by sin. The problem isn't just out there, the problem is also in here. And the problem is not just that they, those people and their systems are all part of the problem. Oh, we are also part of the problem, which means we're not part of the solution. Well, if we have a global problem and we have this personal problem and we're part of the problem and not part of the solution, where does our hope and help and healing come from? And we get a little bit of a hint from Halloween. Tiny. A lot of kids and adults dress up at this time of the year as superheroes. And what we have within us is this deep, innate sense that the problem is global and it's personal and that we're part of the problem and not part of the solution. So DC, Marvel, and all the Comic-Cons and all those folks, they're longing for someone who's human, but more than human, who comes from another realm and rescues the globe and us individually. This is where we get all the superhero movies from. Thor and Silver Surfer, Green Lantern, Superman, Eternals. They're almost a guaranteed hit because there's something in us that says there's a problem and the solution needs to come from another realm. And I would just tell you, every kid who knocks on your door dressed up like a superhero is actually longing for Jesus whether they know him or not. And so you tell them, are you looking for someone to save the planet? I know someone who's done just that. And he not only saved the planet, but he also saved you. And his name is Jesus. Here's some candy. Do you want to talk about him? Ultimately, what beats Superman is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so our hope is that there is someone who comes in and is, part, and is part of the solution, not the problem, and is not part of the world, but rules over the world. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Now, the righteousness or goodness or justice of God has been manifested, revealed, unveiled, made known, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's the scriptures, the word of God in the Old Testament. All through the law and prophets, the Old Testament bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How are we going to fix this global problem? How are we going to fix this personal problem? Well, we're not going to fix it but God is through the righteousness of God. 
not our righteousness, but his righteousness. And this, by the way, is the best news in the entire world. And we have it. And think of this righteousness language as a performance that either qualifies you or disqualifies you. So, when you're in school, you get your report card. That's your righteousness. It tells you whether you qualified or disqualified to graduate and head to the next grade. Similarly, when you go to apply for a job, your resume is your righteousness. It's your performance and it tells you whether, you, whether or not you qualified or disqualified. And the question is, when we die, where do we go and how do we get there? How do we qualify to enter into eternal life with God, our Heavenly Father, in his paradise? That's the big question of righteousness. If God is holy and we are unholy, and God is perfect and we're sinful, and God is righteous and only allows the righteous in, when we die, how do we get righteousness? How are we declared qualified to stand before God righteous in his sight? That's the big question in life. And there are only ultimately two ways that people answer the question of righteousness. One is behave, and the other is believe. The behavior path, it can be religious and spiritual in nature. And so, be a good person, tithe, pray to Mecca, reincarnate, pay off your karmic debt, suffer in purgatory for a while, speak in tongues, give alms to the needy. You've got to behave. There's a list of things you need to do if you want to qualify. There's also a secular version of this. Vote for the right political candidate. Back the right cause. Have the correct hashtag. Join the right march or parade. Somehow show that you're behaving in the right way. We're the good people, they're the bad people. Everyone who tries the behave path ultimately finds that it, it's a dead end. It's just a dead end. We cannot be righteous when we are sinful by nature. And so what God says earlier in Romans 1, 2 and part of chapter 3 is that through behavior, through the law, no one is saved. We don't have the right resume to stand before God. No one makes the grade. So, the only other path is the belief path. And the belief path is that we're not the ones who behave. Jesus Christ is the one who behaves. And we believe 
in the one who behaved. These are the only two options really for all of humanity. And what he is saying is that the righteousness is of God. Which means this, it's not our resume that qualifies us to stand before God. If you plan on standing before God and he's like, all right, why should I let you in? If you say, here's what I did. If you stand all alone, wrong answer. Righteousness has been revealed. It's of God. So instead you say, I'm with Jesus. Right answer. It's his works, not mine. It's his behavior, not mine. I just believe in him and thankfully I'm with him. And that's the truth. So ultimately, it's all about Jesus. And what Paul says is that this has been manifested. Manifested, that word. The language is sunrise. Oh, look at that. How cool is that? The sun is rising after a long, dark night that ultimately, as people were on the behave path to do better, try harder, perform more on the performance treadmill of life, Jesus comes along, he's called the light of the world, and all of a sudden we see the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of God. Wow, you're like, there's Jesus. Finally, somebody who knows what they're doing. Finally, somebody who tells it like it really is. Finally, someone who behaves perfectly. So Jesus lives the perfect life, and his life is ultimately the only one that is lived with perfect behavior, no sin whatsoever, righteous. It's Reformation, so i got to mention Martin Luther. He had this revelation change his whole life. Yep, because he grew up in a religious household, and he was on the behave track. And he actually went into the ministry as a priest to behave even more strictly. He took a vow of celibacy and poverty. How many of you guys are like, I don't want to behave like that? So he's a broke virgin living in a church. And now he's not eating well. He's not sleeping well. Day and night he's calling his confessor and confessing his sins. He's a professor who lectures at the university nearby. So he's behaving as best as he can, and he's literally going mad, and he is physically dying because he's trying to be perfect, and he's not. And he's teaching Romans in a seminary class. You can be a Bible teacher. You can have a degree in Bible and not really understand Jesus but the point is, you can't know Jesus without the Bible. But you can know the Bible and not know Jesus. He was one of those guys who knew the Bible like a lot of religious people do, but he didn't really know Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And that all changed for him. And in the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 3, he realizes, oh, I'm not the savior, 
He's the Savior. I'm not the one who behaves. He's the one who behaves. I believe in the one who behaved. So then he goes forth and he preaches this thanks to the printing press, sermon after sermon, article after article, the eternal gospel. He's like, this is it. This is the wisdom of heaven. Faith alone saves, not works of the law. You can just feel the burden lifting off Martin Luther. And that idea, justified by faith, by grace through faith, it changed the world for a lot of us. All of a sudden, the sun rises and he's like, okay, it's Jesus. Everything I'm doing is not going to qualify me to be declared righteous and stand before a holy God. Jesus took care of everything. I need to trust his word on the cross. And what did Jesus say? It is finished. All the behaving is done. And now the believing begins. This issue, shorthand, is called justification by faith. And it actually is such a massive conviction that it split the church in two realms, Protestant and Catholic. Protestant was a protest against Catholicism and their teaching on many things, but in particular, the issue of how we're justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. Is it by behaving or believing or a combination of both? And the Bible teaches, and Martin Luther, Luther taught, by faith alone. Jesus plus anything else ruins everything. It's like a marriage. It's about being fully devoted. In your relationship with Jesus, it's about being fully devoted. You involve anyone or anything else, and it undermines the entire relationship. And ultimately, Martin Luther said that this is the issue on which the church stands or falls. That's what he said. That's it. And just to give you an analogy, two big theological words. One is called monergism. The other is called synergism. I'll simplify it with an analogy. Synergism is the concept that you and God work together for your salvation. That God does his part, you do your part, you work together. Monergism is where God saves you, he does all the work. To give you an imperfect analogy, it's like a person falls into the raging waters, river, and he's going under. And synergism would have said, I reached out my hand, grab my hand, and I'll save you. But they didn't reach far enough or high enough. Synergism, me reaching down, them reaching up. Monergism, reach down, grab them, pulled them out of the water, and saved them. And they, you know what? They didn't argue with me. You overrode my free will. You can't do that. You didn't give me a choice. You didn't ask if I wanted to be saved. More important than your free will and your right to choose, 
according to God is my love for you. That's what saves you. God's love through Jesus saves you. God saves you. That's your life story. You are on the highway to hell, and God reached down with his word and his spirit, and he grabbed you. Romans chapter 1. In this church, that's what we teach. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And we're not ashamed of it. A righteousness from God has been revealed. And it is the righteousness of God that is the only thing that can save you. And that comes as a gift from God that we receive by faith, not by works. Apart from the law, by faith, believing, not behaving. Then, from that incredible gift of his righteousness, as he declares us to be justified in his sight, from that good news that we are righteous in his sight, from that unbelievable good news, we get to respond with good works and a life lived in thankful faith and praise for what God has done to save us. Amen.